So good morning. Good morning. Uh, language is a uh, kind of a funny thing. Uh, language evolves over time. Uh, words and their meanings change quite a bit, and language can be uh, very different even just from region to region. And uh, I learned this, especially uh, the other day, because language used to describe a haircut in California, <laughs> when you move to kind of a military town, <laughs> makes you look like you just enlisted. So, um, fear not, I did not list, enlist in the armed forces, that was just a bit of a language barrier that I, uh, you know... What are you going to do? It'll grow up. Um, so our, our story for today uh, happens kind of after um, the, the episode with Thomas, Jesus and Thomas. And uh, I, it's worth recapping because there's kind of a, a, an implied connection there. Where Jesus, as uh, he is raised from the dead, he first appears to his disciples, all except for Thomas. Uh, he says, here I am, it's me, Here, see my wounds, it's really me. Uh, and then Thomas shows up sometime later, and they say, we've seen Jesus. And Thomas gives them the very, very obvious response of, no, you didn't. People don't rise from the dead. That's not how it works. And he says, unless I see and touch uh, the wounds of Jesus, I will not believe. And then Jesus appears to Thomas and the rest of the disciples, and he says, look, Thomas, here I am. This is me. Don't disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas then gives like the most concise confession of who Jesus is when he says, my Lord and my God. And he doesn't even need to touch Jesus to suddenly buy the fact that this really is him standing in front of him. And the conclusion that we, we came to and talked about a bit is that Jesus seemed perfectly happy to meet Thomas in his doubts. He didn't condemn him. He didn't say, how dare you doubt or, or be skeptical or anything like that. And so I then kind of just posed the question of why in the church are we sometimes so hard on ourselves when we doubt and sometimes, why are we really hard on other people who doubt? Because we are following a very big claim that God raised somebody from the dead who, is now continue, uh, who now continues to live, who we meet week in and week out in his word and, and the sacrament. So, uh, maybe a, a, a little doubt is, is a very human thing. Now, we're going to encounter some other similar confusion. Uh, Jesus, at some point, and we learn this in the other Gospels, he says, uh, go, uh, he basically tells his disciples to meet him in Galilee. So they travel to Galilee, um, and uh, there are only seven in this particular uh, uh, chapter. I have no idea why. And Peter decides to go fishing. Uh, fishing for Peter and especially James and John, the sons of, of Zebedee and probably some of the others, uh, was not a pastime. It, this is not them like on the, uh, the shores of Lake Tiberias, or, which is also the Sea of Galilee because everything has multiple names back then. Um, 
this is not them like sitting on the shore of the lake, you know, casting a rod and sipping on a beer or something like that. This is what they did for a living. They were professional fishermen. So why did they do that? Did they need the money? Did they need the food? I don't know. John doesn't tell us. And there's no like clear indication one way or the other. So anyway, they, they fish all night because apparently you fish at night and they're casting nets and nothing happens and then Jesus appears on the shore but they don't recognize him because Jesus, as he has been raised from the dead, is weird. It's, it's kind of eerie. Not spooky, in a sense, because Jesus is not a ghost. The gospel writers are very clear about that. But he's, something has transformed. They don't recognize him, and so he says, hey, did you catch anything? And nothing. He goes, I don't know, throw the net on the right side. Um, I don't know if, about you, but if I was up all night uh, with no luck, I would say, hey, why don't you come do it? Stop telling me what to do. I'm tired. But whatever. So they throw it on the right side, and it's full of fish. And the disciple, the beloved disciple whom Jesus loved, who's John, um, he picks it up immediately. So it's, it's Jesus. And Peter, Simon Peter, being the impulsive one, which I kind of like, is like, what? And then he just jumps in the water. Uh, or he grabs his, his garment. But he jumps in the water and swims, even though they're like 100 yards out, which isn't that far. Um, so then it turns out that Jesus has been waiting for this moment. He's got a fire going. He's making them breakfast. Um, their breakfast consists of bread and broiled fish, which, ugh, for breakfast? No way. Uh, fish for breakfast is gross unless it's like lox on a bagel with cream cheese and capers and onions, but whatever. Um, then he's, he's just eating breakfast with his disciples. Uh, again, Jesus raised from the dead is very strange. And then he says, come bring some of that fish that you just caught. And John tells us that it was 153. Why? Why were there 153 fish? As you might imagine, this detail has bothered New Testament scholars and philosophers for the entirety of John, the book of John's existence. I have a list. There's no, I had to write this down. There's no way I could remember this. Jerome, an early church father, talking about Ezekiel chapter 47, a Hebrew prophet, uh, who has a, a, writes a vision of uh, living water flowing from the temple all the way to the Dead Sea, uh, bringing life to the Dead Sea. The fresh water hits the salt water and it becomes life-sustaining and it uh, teems with fish. Well, as it turns out, a Greco-Roman writer, this is Jerome, uh, named Oppian, says that there are 153 fish in existence. So this becomes a parable of the church's mission as the number of fish represent all humanity. I mean, that's cute, but that's actually wrong. Oppian said there were 157 different species of fish, and also there are way more than 157 species of fish. 
another uh, commentator, also using Ezekiel 47. By the way, this is where it gets weird. Uh, says that, uh, as, as Ezekiel says, that people will cast their nets um, along the shores of En Gedi and En Egliam. Um, that's part of Ezekiel's vision. But when you use what's something called gematria, where every letter has a numerical value, and uses the Hebrew words for Gedi and Egliam, well, the gematria, the number for uh, Gedi, yields 17. And Egliam yields 153. And as we all know, the triangular number for 17, which is when you add each number from 1 to 17, is 153. By the way, if you didn't know that that's what a triangular number is, I have a math minor and I had to look that up, so you're good. So if Getty is 17 and Eglium is 153, then obviously that these are the places where Jesus' disciples should begin to fish for, for, for people. Except in order for that to work, the guy who proposed that idea actually had to go and find manuscripts where Getty and Eglium were specifically misspelled just to add up to those numbers. St. Augustine said that because 17 is the triangular number of 153, 17 is 10 plus 7, where 10 stands for the Ten Commandments, and 7 stands for the seven spirits before the throne of God in Revelation 1, chapter 4, or chapter 1, verse 4. Or maybe the 7 should be broken down to 3 plus 4, which 3 is the number of the Trinity, and the number of uh, and 4 is the number for the New Jerusalem, which is Foursquare, or the feeding of the 5,000 were originally five loaves of bread, and there were 12 baskets of food left over, and 5 plus 12 equals 17. And, uh, I stopped there, but there are more. Uh, or, they're professional fishermen, maybe they just counted. But I became a little obsessed with the fact that we had to figure out what 153 meant. Human beings abhor a vacuum. We do not like mystery. Things that we can't just break down into pieces and figure out all the constituent parts and put it back together, especially in our culture. We need to have a sense of mastery or control over the details of our lives. That's a really fancy way to say that we have a tendency to be control freaks. And sometimes that yields amazing things. It yields things like indoor plumbing and air conditioning and computers. But when you encounter something that just is, maybe you just can't, you encounter something that maybe you can't control, what do you do? How do we respond? Now pair this both with looking back to Thomas, where Jesus meets him in his doubt, and there it is, 
And then what happens right after Peter brings the 153 fish and notices that the nets didn't tear? If you caught it, the disciples are sitting there eating their fish and bread with Jesus. And John says, none of them dared to ask because they knew it was Jesus. Wait, none of them dared to ask. Why would they have dared to ask in the first place if they knew it was Jesus? One commentator, uh, D.A. Carson, put it this way, uh, and, and I think this is spot on, a much better way to, to like word this. The disciples wanted to ask Jesus, is it really you? Because Jesus raised from the dead, sitting in front of them, feeding them breakfast, still doesn't make sense. And it's not going to make any sense for a while. And eventually it's going to make some sense. And in our, in our desire to control even the things that we believe, the things that we believe about God, maybe, the, maybe our inability to handle the mystery or the vacuum or the things that we can't just break down and understand starts to work against us. That maybe this resurrection miracle the miracle of miracles, the miracle that sums up all miracles, is meant to invite us into mystery rather than invite us into this just axiomatic certainty. In my Bible study after after the service, we're going to talk, we're going to finish hopefully, a conversation about resurrection. And and I'm not going to prove that Jesus was raised from the dead. What I'm going to offer is that there aren't really any other good explanations for why the church arose. And that's a very different thing. Because death transformed into life is an invitation into the things that we cannot understand. Now, what do you do when you have a hard time controlling the things around you or understanding what is happening? I am personally in this special kind of purgatory. I mean, we don't believe in purgatory, but it feels like what I imagine purgatory would feel like. Uh, we you know, bought our house, we closed, and now we're gutting it because it hasn't really... I mean, it's, it's not really livable in, in its state. So that means dealing with loads of subcontractors and contractors who all seem very good at what they do, but they live complicated lives, and they have complicated jobs, and it feels like every day there's a phone call or a text. And to be perfectly honest, my wife and mother-in-law are carrying the brunt of this burden, um, for what it's worth, of like, hey, yeah, scheduling's not going to work. And we're like, yeah, but the roof is going on that day. You can't do anything. And, and trying to schedule things, it's like herding cats. Nothing against the contractors. They all seem very good at what they do, but they have complicated lives. And we have no control over anything. <laughs> I'm never going to move into my own house. 
So what do you do <laughs> when you don't have control over your own life or what's happening around you? I think those are very, very closely related. Um, the resurrection of Jesus and Jesus as he has been raised from the dead is beyond control. He's there briefly and then he's gone. And I would bet you all the money I have in the world, which honestly isn't that much, but I would bet you that his disciples would be willing to beg for him to spend just more, five more minutes with him. But he apparently has other things to do. He's beyond control, beyond understanding. And I, and I think as we sit here in the afterglow of Easter, where even that, those, those dark parts in our hearts that want to control everything and everybody around us, and everybody here is a control freak, that's what it means to be human. That even that dies with Jesus. And in this afterglow of resurrection life, maybe we're sitting here with an invitation to just sit around the fire and trust. Maybe the, the, the deep things of God are not understandable. The deep probings, what it really, really meant and means and what it really looks like to see Jesus standing there in front of you. Like, maybe... The, Maybe Jesus' invitation is to just sit around the table and eat. Trusting that we don't have it all figured out. That maybe it's enough to know that Jesus was crucified for me and for you. God raised him from the dead and that creates a new reality for all of us. And in those moments... When life is totally out of our control. When things don't make sense. When we are like Thomas and just consumed by doubt and frustration. And we have no idea what God is doing or what this all means or where we're going or anything like that. Maybe one of the be most beautiful things about God defeating death in Jesus is that it's just an invitation to sit and eat and rest. So with that in mind, in a few moments, we will do just that. Receive Jesus in the way that he promised he would be with us always. In his body and in his blood. Receiving pure grace and forgiveness. Because maybe that's enough. Amen. I invite you to rise.